This is a Federal News Network podcast. Inflation is at its highest rate since the 1990s, maybe you've noticed. With nearly everyone experiencing the pain of five-buck gasoline and other rising chicken prices, federal contractors with long-term deals are feeling a different kind of discomfort. In his weekly Reporter's Notebook, executive editor Jason Miller writes about why rising costs are forcing some companies out of the federal market and what the General Services Administration is hoping to do about it. And Jason joins me now in studio. So contractors are feeling this worse than any other kind of business, do you think, Jason? In many ways they are because the process to raise prices is so slow. And remember, Tom, if you signed a five-year firm fixed-price contract to provide widgets and all of a sudden the cost of that widget now is 50 cents more or a dollar more, there's no way to raise your price because you've signed a deal with the government for that firm fixed price. So that's one issue. The other issue is around multiple word schedules, right? These are the contracts that GSA runs, VA has some, and, multi- and long-term, if you will, IDIQ-type contracts that are that DHS. DOD, you can name every agency, probably has their own multiple award contract. But those two are based on a set of prices, and to raise those prices can take for can take a long time to do get through the process add a modification to your contract now uh, the coalition for government procurement wrote a letter to mark lee over at gsa and says you know basically contractors are losing 15 to 25 percent of individual products because of this rise in inflation the rise of cost of doing business and this is even a bigger stark reality for small businesses who are operating on on much less margins and and contrary to popular belief thomas as you and i have seen over the, the years there's not a huge margin for a lot of government contractors. They're not at 10, 12, 15%. They're at 1% and 2%. So a 50 cent increase in their widget really cuts into their, their ability to make money. And it's fairly easy for them to cut costs and cut prices. And that's what we've seen the trend, especially in electronics over all these years. But raising prices, not so easy on the schedule or anywhere else. Specifically, let's look at the schedule for a second because there's something like 30,000 government contractors on the schedule itself. And GSA understands this, but there's something called the Economic Price Adjustment Clause that allows agencies to raise the prices. Stephanie Schutz, the director of the Multiple Award Schedule Program Management Office, and describes why the Economic Price Adjustment Clause is more difficult than it needs to be. For example, once you add something, you can't increase it for the first year. After the first year, you can increase, but no more than three times a year per item, and that could be product, service, or solution. And there is a cap percentage. Majority of it's 10%, but in some categories, it is 5%. Total increased per year cap. We do have a workaround related to the cap percentage where there is a process for you guys to request an increase higher than 10%, and that is due to market forces. And you'll need to document those market forces if you are requesting an increase over that 10% so that your CO can do that negotiation. Again, Stephanie Shutt, the director of the Multiple Award Schedule Program Management Office at GSA. She said, though, what's important here is it's not just the idea of raising costs. It's, it's the idea of, of having to prove that your costs are actually going to increase. She describes some of the evidence that contractors need to bring to the table as they're talking to their contracting officers. Some great documentation could include freight charges of raw materials and how that affects your supply chain. Another thing could be related to just increase of supply chain costs related to raw materials or that for labor categories, I know with COVID and people coming back to work, there is 
a need to pay people more to have them work for different companies. So there may be an increase in what you're paying your employees. Again, Stephanie Shutt, the director of the Multiple Word Schedule Program Management Office at GSA. Now, at the top, we mentioned that GSA is trying to help alleviate some of this pain, the economic price adjustment clause. What are they specifically doing? I think they've heard the the calls from the Coalition for Government Procurement and other professional services council and other associations saying, hey, we need some help. We need to do it now. One of the problems with the price economic price adjustment clause is how long it takes. And there are some workarounds, but it doesn't mean it goes any faster. So, so again, Stephanie Schutt talks about some of the workarounds and they're trying to put together. We are working with the Office of Government-Wide Policy and our Office of Policy and Compliance to see what we can do to provide workarounds for industry so that you guys can increase more often throughout the year and increase more often after you've added something to your contract so that your pricing can stay current and your pricing can stay fair and reasonable and we can make sure that you are in a pocket for success. Again, Stephanie Shutt, the director of the Multiple Word Schedule Program Management Office. She was speaking at the uh, Center Law and Consulting event that was held last week. Tom, one of the things that we need to keep in mind about this is as, as vendors go through this process and GSA fixes it, it's got to happen more quickly. It, it can't take months and months and months for GSA to get through this. In fact, I spoke with Larry Allen, who's a, a, often comes on your show and talks about the things that are happening to contractors. And he goes, listen, the fact is it's, it's a good sign that GSA is making changes. The, the challenge here is how long will it take? If they're collecting input and then going through a process and talking about it, it can't be months and months and months because the inflation is not going to all of a sudden come back down. Vendors are still going to lose money. Vendors are still going to make have to make a decision of whether or not they're going to get out of the industrial base for, for federal market or not. So he says there's something maybe GSA can do in the interim and then in the long term really adjust, uh, take care of this arduous process around the economic price adjustment clause. Of course, the other issue is that there's nothing the agencies can do about the fixed budgets they have for procurement coming through. And so they can buy less now assuming all of these adjustments eventually happen. And that's the other issue as well, is because agency budgets are set for a year in advance, or, or in some ways multiple years in advance, what their requests are, it does not also take into account the inflation. And it also could impact agency missions where, well, I'm trying to buy the widget. Well, I can only sell you 10 widgets. I know you want 20 widgets, but I can only only sell you 10 because I can't make 20, or I don't have the raw materials to make 20. So you're right, Tom. I think this is not just a contractor problem. This is an agency challenge as well. And are there some things agencies can do to address these impacts of inflation? I mean, they can cut travel, they can, but it sounds like they would have to rob from Peter to pay Paul. In many ways, they do that all the time, right? I mean, <laughs> we see that problem come up, whether or not there's inflation or not. Tom, what's interesting, when I started to do some research to see what was written about inflation, and we haven't had a you know, really big inflation since 1991, the last time it was this high. And if you all go all the way back to 1975, which I think you were in college back then, Tom, uh, I found a research paper written by Richard Johnson and John Patcher, who are now government contract attorneys. Smith, Pactor, McWhorter. You are exactly right. You know John Pactor. And they actually had a really interesting paper written for the Washington and Lee Law Review about what to do about the inflation crunch of the 1970s. And let me just put you, give you a sense of where we were in 1975 in case if you don't remember. Inflation was at 9.13%. A gallon of gas was 44 cents. The average gallon of milk was $1.57. Just as a take you down memory lane for a second. Things are obviously much different today, but 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 uh, uh, Richard and John wrote in their paper and suggested that they could use a little-known law back from uh, it was a 1958 law that would allow during times of national defense 
to raise prices automatically and not have to go through this process. And, and they make they write this very eloquently to explain why they that the agencies have this ability to say this is a national defense issue and to raise prices. So I think that that is an option for agencies that they should consider. In fact, I checked in with uh, Richard Johnson about that and said, hey, well, first of all, was this you that wrote the paper? And he said, yes. Same Richard. <laughs> Same Richard. And then he said to me, uh, one thing to consider is, is if you're a good lawyer and you can make your case to the contracting officer, this is why you can make your case, given that, the, for instance, the price, the price of gasoline definitely is, is based on what's happening in Ukraine and the the issues happening in Russia. If you can make that case, connect those dots, you could potentially get them to move. But it's a very difficult situation. Well, you know, the old saying, these recessions or these inflationary periods come along every so often so that the new generation will remember to turn the lights out. And close the refrigerator door. That's right. I think I'm going to go dig out my whip inflation now pin and wear it on the lapel if we still wore jackets with lapels anymore. Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks so much. My pleasure, Tom. Be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and 
obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. 
um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. By donating plasma at a Griffel Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week, so patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on. And you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at Grifflesplasma.com. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.